0: Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we are uh, amazed at your love. We do not take for granted your love. We recognize the vastness of it, and we want to recognize that vastness more all the time. And we pray, Father, that you would help us as we continue to worship you in the word, that you would be giving us the grace that we need, that that love not only would have been shed abroad, as it has been in our hearts, but that it would then be displayed in us and through us for your glory. We want to put you on display, for you are the very best. We pray this in Jesus' name men. Have you ever had a conflict at work? At home? In the church? With your parents? With your spouse? With your children? I bet you that you said yes to all of those. And that would make you no different than the rest of us. Sometimes conflicts revolve around small little things. And other times they revolve around major and sometimes even catastrophic events. I can remember early in my wife and I's days of marriage, I used to drive a truck. I used to have to get up at 3.30 in the morning. 3.30 in the morning, this is what she would do when my alarm went off. She She would just take her finger and just push it in my back a few times, just letting me know that the alarm was going off. She did this day after day week after week, month after month. And, and I didn't want to say, will you stop doing that? So, so one day, one day when, when things were calm, and it was after the fact, I, I just said to her, you know when it's 3.30 in the morning and you do this thing with your finger? I don't really like that. Could, could you not do that anymore? Amazingly, to her credit, never again did she, has she poked me in the back to tell me to get out of bed. So that, that was good news. Just a small little thing. Could turn into a big conflict, small little thing. Others have experienced conflicts that are far more egregious. Some have experienced the pains of infidelity, uh, legal troubles, financial improprieties, some who have gambled away the family nest egg, all these kinds of major challenges. Whether situations are small, as I mentioned about in, in my wife and my case, or something as large as in maybe something you've experienced, there's conflict, it's available, it abounds in every relationship all the time, there, there are opportunities for it. And what's interesting as we notice throughout the New Testament particularly, as we read from book to book, there are these charges from God to us concerning forgiveness, concerning unity, concerning oneness of mind. And it's no surprise because He knows us. And in the face of these calls to forgiveness and unity, the Bible makes statements like this in John 1335. By this, meaning love and service, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the Bible calls us to love because that love is is a display for others to see. Uh, If you look at a passage like Ephesians 4 where the Bible says this, bearing with one another in love. He says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's telling us we're going to have to put up with one another. Bearing with. It means it really means put up with one another. And then he tells us that it's, we're going to have to intensely labor. It says endeavoring. It means a, a labor that produces sweat. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So God told us it wasn't going to be easy to have peaceful relationships. So Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 1.27, Only let your conduct, the way you live, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Where do these challenges toward unity come from? Why is it that people that have experienced God's loving grace sometimes exhibit whatever comes naturally? James gives us some insights about this in two different passages. And James they will both be on the screen behind me first. James 4.1 Where do wars and fights come from among you? Look at the rest of that verse. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war or wage war in your members? The reason that there are conflicts is because we are warring for our own pleasures. James just cuts right to the quick. He says, this is where your conflicts come from. This is where your lack of forgiveness comes from. It's because you want to please you. He tells us in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 16, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But, but, if you have bitter envy and self seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. In other words, don't tell me you're wise and understanding and are bitter and self seeking, because that is not wisdom the wisdom that is exhibited by uh, bitter envy and self-seeking, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, like everybody else, sensual, having to do with your senses and your desires, and devilish or demonic, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are. What, What an interesting statement to end that with. Every evil thing. Every evil thing. What's our problem? We have a certain sense of what's good and right for us. And when that is violated, war, war, and a lack of forgiveness, resentment, anger, malice, bitterness, and envy. This is what happens, friends, because we are self-protectors. So as we look at a very compact section of Scripture, we're only looking at verses 13 and 14 of Colossians 3. As we look at this compact portion of Scripture, we should notice how important the subject matter is in these verses, which is why we're only going to touch this sliver and not not try to expand upon it, because I don't think we want to lose the essence of what's being spoken of here. It is a section that brings forth a theme that is a regular topic in the New Testament. So listen, as individual believers and as the church we should be known we should be known as those who seek to resolve conflicts rather than letting conflicts linger as individuals and as a church we should be known as those who seek to resolve conflicts rather than allow them to linger in this way we will be reflecting god's character and we're allowing his kingdom to be displayed here and now, in time and space. Now we talk about the kingdom of God, and, and we know that there's a future kingdom of God, and that's beautiful, and we know that currently, if you were to think about heaven, everything is under his jurisdiction, everything works exactly as he anticipates, everything goes exactly the way he plans, everything is perfect, his kingdom is, is resounding in heaven, we understand that. But there is a sense, friends, in which His kingdom can be demonstrated, displayed here on earth. This is the glorious part of of the now. You see, we don't have to wait for the kingdom to come for the kingdom to be displayed here. Because Jesus did bring forth an element of the kingdom when He came. Wherever the king is, guess what? There's the kingdom. And guess what? He left His Spirit. He sent His Spirit to rule in our hearts so that the king could be present. And so there's a sense in which the kingdom can be demonstrated right now. God's character, listen carefully, God's character must be preeminent. It must be a preeminent feature of the church that is living for God's kingdom. We've been talking about living for God's kingdom because we recognize that, okay, Jesus is at the right hand of God, and we're in Him. We died with Him. Our life is hidden with Christ and God. This is all good. Uh, Christ is our life, Christ is all and in all, Christ is is all and is in all, it says in verse 11. We we see this all through this this chapter, this concept of, of our union with Christ. If His kingdom is going to be displayed, if we're going to live for His kingdom, God's character must be displayed. And so we noted last week two concepts about this. Living for God's kingdom necessitates a special relationship with God. We are chosen. God chose us. He told us. He's declared us holy. He didn't say be holy in this section. He says, you are holy and you are loved. He says, you're beloved. He doesn't say, earn my love, be really good and I'll love you. He says, as the chosen of God, as the elect of God, you are holy and you are loved by God. This is the statement that he makes. In verse twelve, so living for God's kingdom first necessitates a special relationship with God. Secondly, living for God's kingdom necessitates fruitfulness from God. We came to the the middle of verse twelve, and he says, "But put." Doesn't say "but." It says, "Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long suffering. Put on fruitfulness." fruitfulness. It's not your fruitfulness. It's not learn how to be humble. It's not learn what tender mercies look like, feel like, sound like, and go do them. He says, put these things on. They don't belong to us. They are fruits of God's working. So he tells us to put on fruitfulness. This is how we live for God's kingdom. So two weeks ago, we looked at verses 5-11, through 11, and you can only have one king. You cannot simultaneously uh, fulfill your desires and fulfill God's will. It doesn't work. So you've got to choose one or the other. Either you serve God or you serve yourself. This is why we put off the old man with his desire. So, So instead of feasting on what comes naturally, what we feel, what we like. We put those things off. Instead, we want to have God rule and reign in our lives. We want him to be king for us. And so he transitions from putting off the old, and then he transitions to putting on the new, put on these character traits that are his. Put on uh, is, is a way of displaying the one who is our king. Remember this, and I've, I've already made intimations toward it, but I, I think it's important when we talk about putting on virtues, we're not talking about developing them. We're not even talking about learning what they're supposed to look like so that we can do them. Now, learning what they look like is very helpful, isn't it? To learn what tender mercies looks like is important. Why? Because I can look at my life and compare it with tender mercies and say, ah, you're not doing that. You're, you're not displaying tender mercies. What's the problem? Well, you just haven't learned them well enough. No, that's not the problem. The problem is I haven't put on Christ. That's the problem. Because when Christ is ruling as the king in my life, guess what flows out? Tender mercies. That's why it's important to know what they look like. Because when you see them on display, you say, okay, the Spirit's controlling me. I'm not controlling myself. This is good news. It's called grace. So we we learn them for that sake. Remember, we are are allowing God's grace to reign in us. Uh, We realize that we're no longer under the law, but we are under grace. We see that in Romans chapter 6, right? What does it mean to be under grace? It means to allow the rulership of grace in your life. Well, who is the king of grace? Do you know him? The Lord Jesus Christ. You could say God the Father is the king of grace. You could say the Holy Spirit is the king of grace. All three members of the Godhead, they rule and reign in grace, through grace, and with grace. So they distribute that grace for us. Now, that introduction is over. We're going to transition into the passage. And I made this statement last week, and it's where we're going to pick up. God's grace produces Christian forgiveness. God's grace produces Christian forgiveness. All of the words in that sentence are vitally important for us. I don't produce Christian forgiveness, and God's grace doesn't simply produce forgiveness. God's grace produces Christian forgiveness. Let's follow this through for a little bit, and we'll follow under this heading, because we're looking at living for God's kingdom. Here's the heading. Living for God's kingdom necessitates God's abundant mercy. Living for God's kingdom necessitates, it's necessary, necessitates God's abundant mercy. Take a look at verse 13. He says, Bearing with one another, and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another even as Christ forgave you so you also must do now must do isn't actually in the original it just says so you too it's kind of like little kids saying you too you too it, the the command is understood just like Christ forgives you you too that's what he tells us you know, it's interesting, we love, we love to be forgiven. We don't, unfortunately, love to forgive. You're going to hear this at least two times during the message. Forgiveness is at the heart of the Christianity. Amen. It's at the heart of it. He tells us to bear with one another. Well, that's, that's, kind of dealing with people's idiosyncrasies, right? You've got the um, the close talker. You, you know the close talker. They, they're right up in your grill, and you're like, take a step back, and they follow you. <laughs> and you take a step back, and they follow you, and they're trying desperately to get you like up against the wall so they can continue their close talk, and you're like, back off, pal! Right here. This is good. From, from this, you, you could call them kind of a, a really great video game name, Space Invaders. <laughs> well, this isn't good. H- how about um, the toucher? The toucher? I happen to be a toucher. Like, you come near me, I put my hand on your shoulder. You, some of you probably don't like it. I'm sorry. Bear with me. And if you tell me I really don't like when people touch me, I'll do my best to keep my hand off your shoulder. They're touchers. You know, they can be irritating. If you don't like to be touched and someone touches you, it can be irritating. They didn't sin against you, but it's, it's irritating. The eye darter, you know, you know what an eye darter is? You're talking to them and they're like, looking all over the room, and you're thinking, Hey, I'm right here. Can you, right here. Hello? You know, they, these are idiosyncrasies. We bear with one another in our idiosyncrasies. At least we're supposed to. Well, that's, that's kind of easy. It's kind of easy to say, man, the close talker, I got away from him without getting too much of a spit in my face. I, I'm okay. And, and the toucher, he only touched me three times. I think I'm okay. And, and the eye I, I daughter, well, it's not that big of a deal. I, I can get over this. But how about the, the next part? Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. This is where it gets a little bit more difficult. This is when people sin against us because they do. Guess what? Not only do they sin against you, guess what? You sin against them too. No one in here is flawless. No one in here is sinless. No one in here has got this all mastered and and now knows how to live perfectly in harmony with everyone. So you sin against other people. They sin against you, which is why over and over again in Scripture we are admonished to forgive one another because we dwell as sinners among sinners, in the church and out of the church, in the home and out of the home. There are sinners everywhere, and you are one of them. You want to try to get away from sinners, and you move all by yourself. Guess what? There you are. You look at yourself in the mirror. If there are no mirrors, you don't look at yourself, you know you're still there. Sinner. There's No getting away from it. Why is forgiveness so difficult? Why does it require God's supernatural intervention. Oftentimes, the reason forgiveness is so difficult is our sense of justice has been violated. We think of ourselves as having certain inalienable rights. We live in a country who celebrates this every 4th of July. I'll remind you of the founding document by Thomas Jefferson, this portion. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with inherent and inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles, and organizing its powers in such form as, to them, seems most likely to affect their safety and happiness." We celebrate this every 4th of July. Think about that. We tell ourselves, we are Americans, we have certain inalienable rights. Guess what? That's true of every human that ever lived. They think, I have a right, you shouldn't, you shouldn't cross into this area, you shouldn't do this to me, my rights have been infringed, infringed upon, so I feel just in my resentment, In my bitterness, in my anger, in my malice, and in my hatred. And God says, put off all these. Put these things off. They they are not helpful. And they are not rights. It's not okay. Put on the opposite. Tender mercy. Kindness. Humility. Humility meekness long suffering and the way that that works its way out is we bear with one another and we forgive one another because we feel we have certain rights when these norms are violated we feel just in withholding our fellowship to those who violate those rights this is why friends we must put on put on christian virtues this forgiveness does not come naturally I don't. I I say it time and again, and I hope that it's resonating. This forgiveness does not come naturally. We don't learn how to offer Christian forgiveness. You can't have enough Bible studies that teaches you enough so that you now. Okay, I understand forgiveness now. So now I can offer it. It doesn't work that way. The 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 forgiveness that is spoken of here is so otherworldly. It only comes by supernatural means. Instead, what we learn is that Christian forgiveness is like this and it only flows from a life that is dominated by the Spirit of God. If you think about this, the reason that we struggle with forgiveness is because our rights have been violated. Uh, we feel an injustice has has been uh, brought upon us and, and we, we hold on to that. I, I, don't, I don't like this. And whose rights have been Violated more than our saviors. Whose rights were and continue to be violated more than His? Reminding you, He suffered for sin, the just for the unjust. Talk about violation of rights. And while He was being rejected, crucified, and forsaken. Do you remember? He cried out from the cross, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." Do you remember that? It's so beautiful to us when we look, isn't it? Like when you think about that, you read that, you can actually put yourself visi- uh, you know, visually in the situation. You can you can almost conjure up a view of of this scene of uh, horror and difficulty. You can almost see your Savior hanging on the cross and the people sneering, out, sneering at Him. And you, you can almost hear His words. You've read it so many times. You, you can almost sense Him saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And our hearts resonate with this, this giant amen. Because if He were, were not like that with them, He would not be like that with us, and we would remain in our sin. Horror. Of all horrors. So our hearts take a giant happy leap when we hear that. And yet, that's the kind of forgiveness that God is telling you should flow from your life. And my life. So here we are in Colossians 3. We've read it once I want to read it again verse 13 bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another even as Christ forgave you so you also must do remember forgiveness is at the heart of biblical christianity i want to look at a couple of passages because you know it's it's nice to have these thoughts in our minds i really want to have all of us, myself included, just have a sense of how vitally important this concept is? Because God minces no words on this matter. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, please. Now we have this great section telling us to walk worthy of vocation in verse 1, talking about uh, some attributes that should flow from our lives in verse two, the peace that, God, that comes from verse three, uh, what we are unified around verses four through six, the gifts that are ours in verses seven through ten, the gifts that are actually administered to the church in verse eleven, uh, what that 's supposed to look like and how it 's supposed to flow out from verses eleven down through verse sixteen, verses seventeen through twenty four he gives us this thought about not living like you used to live, instead live by putting on Christ and, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This beautiful section. He starts to apply it in verse 25. Listen, you, you used to be a liar. Don't lie anymore. Speak truth. You used to be angry all the time. Stop being angry. Um, don't sin in your anger. Don't let the sun come up upon your wrath. He tells us, you used to steal. Don't steal any longer. But labor working with your hands. Don't speak corrupt communication anymore. Instead, um, let gracious words come out of your mouth. This, this is what just happened in, in chapter 4. Then he comes to verse 30. And he brings, he brings a serious situation to our attention. He says, and do not continue to grieve, is the idea in the Greek, do not continue to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. He told them, stop lying, stop being angry sinfully, stop stealing, stop using your words in- incorrectly, and stop grieving the Spirit. That's what he just told them. This spirit that you're grieving is the one that has sealed you for redemption. This spirit that you're grieving is the one who has has secured your eternal life. Don't grieve the one who's saving you. Don't grieve the one who is the the surety of your salvation. And what does it look like uh, for us to grieve Him? Verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. An unwillingness to set aside bitterness, wrath, anger, and malice, an unwillingness to be kind and forgive is assurance that you have grieved the Spirit. Because what does the Spirit bring forth? The Spirit brings forth everything the other way than this. The Spirit brings forth love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. You look at those, those fruits, the demonstrations of the Spirit, and they are contrary to the things listed in verse 31. This is why to, to reside in unforgiveness and bitterness is to grieve the Spirit because that's not what he does. He wants to bring forth God's character in your life. To reside in your own character is to say, I'm all set with that. Thank you very much. I like myself the way that I am. Christian, I'm asking you a question. Do you like yourself the way that you are? I hope not. I hope you don't like yourself the way that you are. Do you like the Spirit of God? Oh, Of course I do. Do you like the Spirit of God to be demonstrated in you? Of course I do. But yet you're holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness. You can't get some of the fruit. It doesn't work that way. Well, I'm going to hold on to this bitterness. I'm going to hold on to this forgiveness because they've really hurt me. You don't understand. Like, this offense is, like, like really big. Okay. Your rights have been violated. And it was wrong. Whatever that person did to you, it was wrong. I'm not cheapening it one bit. you really want to hold on to that? That's the way you want your life to be dominated from this point on? To let unforgiveness rule you, turn into bitterness, wrath, anger, and malice. It's not helpful. It's wrong. It's grieving the spirit. And then the fruit, the fruit that you want, you want to display Jesus where you go? You're not going to display Jesus. You can, you can kind of make it look like you know Jesus. You can talk Jesus talk. You can say Jesus kinds of things. But that's just flesh. Flesh doesn't help us with anything. Take a look one more step further at this, the the importance of this. Matthew 18. There's an important clarity, clarifying statement coming, so don't don't get yourself all bent out of shape with all your scenarios. Let the Word work. Here we are. We know about this situation. We've, We've read it before. Jesus is dealing with this question of forgiveness. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21. God's Word says, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? It's good. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, to me, that's good enough information. You just pause it right there. I'm good. Okay. 490 times? We're all mathematicians here. We've got this down. Good, good to go. I've got my chart. I'm going to mark it off because I know this guy is going to get up to 491. <laughs> then we're good. But Jesus doesn't leave it that simply for us because he didn't really mean 490 times. He just meant just keep forgiving them. And the reason we know that is because he then told a story. We call it a parable. Listen to what he says. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Just call it a great deal of money, more than you could ever accumulate in a lifetime. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. Sad. This is the bad news, verse 26. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Now just, I just want to remind you, 10,000 talents, it's like you'd have to win Powerball and whatever the one that's next to it, is it Mass Millions or whatever it is, you, you take the two of them that are on the side of the road down the street here, you've got to win both of them in order to pay this guy back. Have patience with me and I'll pay you all. That, that's not real. It's not true. But it, there was this, this humble recognition of, of owe, owing someone something and so he, he throws himself at his mercy. Verse 27. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and fought, oh, excuse me, found, sorry, and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, that's a hundred days wages, so that's like less than a third of a year. And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat and said, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me and I will pay you all. Jesus used the exact same wording. And he would not. But went and threw him into prison till he should Pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came out and they told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had compassion on you? Just as, you notice that little phrase there, just as I had compassion on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. Listen carefully to verse 35. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Now we can't get to the bottom of all of this. There's a lot going on. But a child, a child understands what Jesus just said. What did Jesus say? The same way that God forgives you, you are to forgive others. And just so you know, there is nothing anyone could do to you that is equivalent to what God has forgiven you. Nothing. He says, makes this strong statement of condemnation to the one who doesn't forgive his brother. And I don't want to get stuck in the weeds here. But know this. At the heart of biblical Christianity is forgiveness. Forgiveness comes from God. Christian forgiveness comes from God. And when you have been forgiven there is rightfully to be a demonstration and outflow of that forgiveness. We cannot say we live for God's kingdom and hold grudges. Now, here's the important clarifying statement. We offer forgiveness to all. Offer it. We allow bitterness, resentment, and anger to none. Follow me so far? But true restoration of a relationship only comes after repentance. So I want you to think through those statements. We're offering forgiveness to all. We allow ourselves no room for bitterness, resentment, and anger. But real, true consummation of forgiveness only comes when there's been repentance from the one that you're offering forgiveness to. Does that make sense? The reason this is so important is, you know, just because we offer forgiveness doesn't mean that we have a restored relationship. Jesus' death was sufficient for the world. Yes? is every human being of all time going to heaven? There's repentance first. The passage says in Colossians, even as Christ forgave you, so you too. So the way that we distribute our forgiveness is the same. We offer forgiveness. I'm not holding grudges. But our relationship isn't restored until you turn and recognize what you've done to cause this offense. So listen, you've got people that have offended you, and you've offended many people. I don't know what the state of your relationships are, but for for the, the relationship to be truly restored, there must be one person saying, Hey, listen, I recognize what I did to you. It was wrong. Please forgive me. Because you've already offered forgiveness, because that's your natural state, <laughs> that's your spiritual state, you, you offer forgiveness to all, when they come in that repentant way, you say, hey, listen, uh, I, I forgive you, uh, we can move forward together. Without that restoration, there's still the offer of forgiveness, but it's not fully realized without the repentance. When was your record changed? in God's courts. Was it when Jesus died on the cross? Was that when your record was changed? When there's an expression of faith in Christ alone, sin is removed, Jesus' righteousness is added, the records in heaven are changed. It's not before then in the sense of the actuality. When you realized you were separated from God, when you realized that you needed God's forgiveness, when you turned from your sin to God, that's called repentance. You realized that your sin was nailing your spiritual coffin. When you cried out in faith, God changed your record. He granted you permanent permanent pardon. And even greater, He changed your record from sinner to saint. From sinner to righteous. How many of your sins did God forgive? How many times will God forgive you? Do you, do you believe that? Yeah, you do. Absolutely. You've got no issue believing that God forgives time and again. You, you see it in 1 John 1, nine. He's faithful. It means He does it every time. And He's just. It means He's made the proper payment to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You believe it. But... When someone is bringing those offenses to you, that's when we put on the brakes because our sense of justice has been violated. This is the type of forgiveness that God is requiring of his people. And you're going to say, that's impossible. And I'm going to say, you're right. You are right. It's impossible. This is why we need grace. Grace is God's divine intervention into our impossibilities. That's not the only definition of grace, by the way. But grace is God doing in us and through us what we could never do of our own accord. We must hold ourselves accountable for a lack of forgiveness when we do not exhibit the type of forgiveness that we're talking about, we're not displaying God's kingdom. We're displaying our own. Conversely, the other side of the coin is, when by God's grace we demonstrate the kind of forgiveness spoken of in Colossians 3.13, in uh, Ephesians 4.32, when that kind of Forgiveness is being dispensed. You know who's being seen? God's kingdom is being seen. The kingdom that's a kingdom of peace and joy and righteousness and truth. That's the kind of kingdom that's displayed. We're displaying the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. God's character is seen, His kingdom is displayed. So we look at this, this passage and we, we look at Colossians 3.13 and it's so very straightforward, right? Bearing with one another and forgiving one another, even or if anyone has a complaint against another, even as God has forgiven you, or even as Christ has forgiven you, even so you must do. It, it's so easy to read it. It's rather easy to memorize it. But its application, friends, is absolutely impossible except by God's grace. Fortunately, fortunately, we have God's grace. We are so dependent upon it. And so, with God's prescription or admonition or command, God also supplies the actual outflow and application of that. So listen, I, I hope that no one would leave here saying, oh, I've I got to be more a forgiving person. Though that's a true statement, I hope that's not how you leave. I hope that you'll leave saying, dear God, I can't forgive as you've prescribed here, but you can in me. And I, I will not settle for anything less than what you can do. See, this is where we need to be really unsatisfied, dissatisfied with ourselves and very satisfied with God and His ability. And when you find your satisfaction in Him and His ability, you'll start to see Him doing in you what the Scriptures talk about. If you find your satisfaction in you, you'll never find satisfaction in what God's Word says because you'll find yourself a failure time and again. You can't do it, but he can. This is the great part of being called by God's grace. Now, we have a whole other point that we were going to get to. I'll just introduce it, and then we'll we'll close out. This will be for next Sunday now. Living for God's kingdom necessitates God's binding love. And so he tells us, above all these things, in addition to all these things, you, the, the tender mercies kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. In addition to all of that, put on love because it perfectly binds us together. And so next week we'll, we'll pick it up there. We're going to talk about love and peace that come from God's work inside of us. So we've really hit the, the slow-down button in the book of Colossians because if we don't gather these things, I think we're missing out on on some great, gracious gifts from the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help. We struggle to forgive. You don't. We struggle to forget offenses. You've told us you have... Cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. We need your help. We want to be a church that puts your abundant mercy on display. We know you've saved us to be channels of that kind of grace, that kind of mercy. Work in us, work through us. That the relationships we have individually, and the way that we demonstrate ourselves as a church would rightly display who you are, that people would see that your kingdom is a glorious kingdom They would be drawn to you and be saved by your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.